Tim Kainold is an award-winning educator and author and a national thought leader in mathematics, wellness, and the professional learning communities at work model. He is former director of mathematics and science and served as superintendent of Stevenson High School District 125, a model PLC at work district in Lincolnshire, Illinois. Dr. Kano is committed to equity and excellence for students, faculty, and school administrators. He conducts highly motivational professional development leadership seminars worldwide with a focus on turning school vision into realized action that creates greater equity for students through their effective delivery of the PLC process by faculty and administrators. He is the past president of the National Council of Supervisors of Mathematics and co-authored several books selling mathematics textbooks over several decades. Dr. Kano has authored or co-authored 13 books on K-12 mathematics and school leadership since 2011, including the 2018 gold medal IPPY award-winning and best-selling book, Heart. He has also authored the best-selling book, Soul, and his most recent bestseller, Educator Wellness with Dr. Tina Bugring. And so without further ado, let's welcome to a conversation with Brian, Dr. Tim Kainold. Tim, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Brian. It's so great to be here with you. I really appreciate it. You know, when I put together that promo or the intro, I realized that you've probably written more books since the intro. You, you're just a prolific writer. And so I may have made a mistake, but, you know, I am so glad that you're on. And uh, again, thanks for joining me. You're more than welcome. And I like the intro, too, because, because um, the uh, the picture and the video part, um, I look a lot younger. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> I don't know about that. Hey, in the in the video, um, the intro, we talked about, you know, some of your bestsellers. And in this book behind me really um, was something that just almost, you know, I shouldn't say almost, literally sped up the trajectory of, of my thinking, my career. Uh, when I read this book, Tim Hart, and looked at the chapters and went chapter by chapter and, and, and reflected on the questions that you had in each chapter and had us, us at the end having written basically our story. It was amazing. But I want to start with this um, in your book. I'm going to read this to you and I'm going to ask you just to respond to it. Baklov Havel says, the salvation of this human world lies nowhere else than in the human heart, in the human power to reflect, in human meekness, in human responsibility. This book is about the very human heart for our work as educators. It's about feeling and seeing the genius, and that's special to me, the genius in every child. It is about deep reflection. It is about a happy and healthy humility of spirit combined with a passion for our responsibility to help each and every student and colleague that joins us along our career path. That's pretty powerful, Tim. Can you speak to that? Yeah, um, I can. You know, I think that uh, 
part of part of understanding that particular passage uh, comes out of the fact that I decided to write heart uh, because our colleague and a mentor to both of us, a man by the name of Rick Tafor, was um, dying of stage four lung cancer. And and he and I had worked together for almost 32 years. Um, I think what I describe in that passage is 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 the commitment we both made as educators to try to improve the learning of all students and not just in our school district, but but you know throughout the country. And and I think I wanted to capture kind of what I call the heartprint in the book uh, of, of his spirit and, sure. and, and my own perhaps too. But I think really the spirit of all educators um, in terms of what it means to give your life to this profession. Ultimately, what is what is the story that, our, that we tell as educators? And uh, and I have to tell you, when when I wrote that, I, I wrote it somewhat in a vacuum, like in the sense that I had no idea if people would even care about what I was writing. You know, like, would they really connect to, to the story? Or would they connect to this aspect of their work life? I think um, even Solution Tree as a publishing company was a little surprised at like just the the enormous reaction we had to the book and 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 the hunger that we all had to we all have I think to figure out our own story yeah. and 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 be the architects of it. Sure. I I do believe we sort of beat the path as we walk it, and so we have all these choices to make. And and it was, um, you know, I think I've always felt that um, it's it's just not sufficient to have great academic knowledge about our subject matter. We we, we must also have um, an outreach and a heart for our students and our colleagues. And that stewardship is a really important part of who we are as educators. Don't get me wrong. I didn't understand that in my first 12 years of teaching. Sure. I, I look very inward. It, I think it takes quite a bit. It takes a little bit of time sometimes to get to a place where you're saying, oh, I, I'm in this profession of others. And, yeah. and I have to pay attention to that. You know, one of the things in the book um, that really kind of resonated with me is this idea of finding yourself, like finding myself, right? And so... Um, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, like the you know the first part of your career, you didn't really think much about that, but and and I didn't as well. I really never journaled, but when I started journaling and reflecting in your book, I literally found myself. I'm like, I, I started to appreciate. It's not a bragging. I started to appreciate what I had accomplished throughout my career. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. You know, I when I, um, so I have a really. Uh, a good friend and advisor, a, a woman um, at Loyola University in Chicago by the name of Janice Fine. And, uh, and, and I really trust her. So when I was early working on that manuscript in 2016 now, uh, uh, I sent her uh, an early version of the manuscript and said, you know, could you please read this for me and give me feedback? I, I really trust your wisdom. So she actually, she said, well, I think we need to meet to talk about it. Right. And I'll never forget, I, I met her in this deli in, in Chicago, and, and she looked at me and she said, you know, Tim, these, this is a really nice book. She goes, but you must always keep in mind that as an author, you have an obligation to take care of the reader. In other words, the reader needs to find themselves sure. in the book. If they can't, then why did you write it? Yeah. And And that really impacted me in terms of like, this can't be about, although it has my stories and those stories have a point. 
and and depending on what your lens is in life as an educator, you, you'll go, yeah, I can identify with that story. I, but what I really wanted was for you to connect to your story yeah. and what does that story bring out of you? And, and so that advice of your words must take care of the reader um, is to hear you say that means a lot to me because that means I accomplished that. You were able to find yourself in in the words, in the work and 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 find your own story. And, and Brian, what's really fascinating is that was extremely unique at the time. Like the idea for Solution Tree to put in what we call, um, you know, scholar margins in a book. So so when you open a part, there, there's white space on either. Yeah. So there's these scholar margins. And then there would be lines where you could actually write your own story in it. And and I've seen, I've had so many people come up to me with a book and they've got post-it notes in there. They've got stuff they've, they've written over. They've gone back and reread what they wrote and said, well, you know, a couple of years later, now I feel a little differently. You know, I see things a little differently than I did when I wrote back then. And um, that just really makes me feel good because in the in the end, then the book is is helping people find themselves, but also appreciate, like you just indicated, their own growth. And that's really awesome. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this, but as I was reading the book, you were getting texts from me. I was like texting you and saying, This is this is what is, what is this? What am I doing? Like I, I'm just like so I was so excited and just sharing some of the you know, kind of ahas that I was in experiencing throughout the the book, I just was was just um, really fortunate to be able to to read it and, and again be able to kind of write my own story or reflect upon my own story. Well, you know, I will say I think the other thing that helped too for me was I was a little bit older by the time I wrote it, and and I had I, I had a lot of journey stories that that we all have because because educating kids is kind of a uni universal experience. And what happened, for example, when I wrote the chapter on what makes you weep, you know, what's worthy of our tears in this profession, you know, it's because I've had moments in my life where all I want to do is sit in my car and cry. At, at, that was part of it. I mean, that 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 hit me when you were working with that district and you were frustrated yeah. and you went in your car and cried and you're like crying tears uh, for those kids. Right. Yeah. And that and that. Those are the things worthy of us fighting for, you know, the, you know, as educators, you know, uh, that, and and so, but I bet there's been an experience for almost every person who's been in the, if you're in the profession long enough, you eventually, at some point in the quiet moment somewhere, you just break down and cry yeah. because you can't win every battle. You can't win with every child. You can't always get the victories. Um I think we're in a profession sometimes where you, we feel like we're not enough. Yeah. And, and honestly, I, it, <laughs> you know, it's why the middle part of the book is on collaboration because we're not enough alone. Exactly. Uh, and, and I'll and just quick, really funny, but um, so with heart, I wanted each letter to stand for something. So H was all about happiness in the workplace right. and A was, and E was about engagement and energy in the workplace. And then I got to A and I wanted it to be about collaboration. And thankfully, Susan, my wife said to me, well, Tim, there's this thing called a synonym. <laughs> so <laughs> you could look up words that mean collaboration right? <laughs> start with an A. So of course, in the book, I call it alliances, but it's really about the, the collaborative nature and the, the social nature of our work life and, and how to use our colleagues to, 
to count on them when we're having difficult times, but also to work with them to solve our really complex problems. Yeah. And I think that's part of the secret of the PLC life is, is that it, it kind of gives us that opportunity to be so much stronger because we're doing it together. Yeah. I, I think, you know, and you know, this better than I, you, you and, and, and Rick um, really, you know, live this through Stevenson, but I think the, you know, embracing the PLC culture, it really saves a lot of careers because we, so. like you said, we, we, you know, we, we can't do this all by ourselves. And if we're vulnerable enough and transparent and we're saying, you know, I say, Tim, help me. I don't teach this effectively. I don't know how to work with this student. Can you help me? And, and Tim's not going to judge me. Tim's going to say, Brian, grab my hand. We're going to walk through this together. Yeah, I've had that same problem. I've actually experienced those same things. And actually, I'm not 100% sure, but let's let's try this and see what happens. And we try it together. Um, there is some, there's a, there's a glue to that, you know, kind of that brings us in. Yeah, I absolutely, absolutely true. You know, Tim, I usually end my podcasts with this old African proverb, as I go, I am wearing you. Mm -hmm. And I shared it at my dad's funeral three years ago. And it really is a proverb that my, my wife shared with me about 15 years ago. But it's all about all the people we are wearing and that we're taking with because they had helped us along the way. Um, and so, you know, when you see Brian Butler, you're not seeing Brian Butler. You're seeing the hundreds of people have poured into him. And so mm. at any of most of my podcasts, I say, to my guests, can you talk to me a little bit about your personal journey, your professional story? So let's go back to your personal story because all yeah. the, you know, you talked about, you know, you don't, you didn't want to make the book about you. You want to make it, you know, those books about, you know, helping people reflect. I think your personal story um, is one of the most poignant and powerful stories that I have heard in terms of how a person comes through a challenge. And has people, your your Uncle Al and Dottie, who have connected and came into your life, who you are wearing? And so can you kind of talk about what happened in 1958 and then your journey from there? Yeah, you know, it, it, it is interesting. Um, I've now, Brian, developed a uh, Ignite session. Ignite is where you do five minutes presentation, 20 slides, advancing every 15 seconds, whether you're ready for it or not. So so the timing has to be perfect. We laugh because most people want to watch you do an Ignite session just to see you fail. <laughs> because they're not going to necessarily match the slides exactly as they're moving. Right. And the one I do, it's called 606 41st Street. And that is the address of my aunt, my mother's sister, my Aunt Dottie, and my Uncle Al's home in um, Rock Island, Illinois, 606 41st Street. And um, in 58, my parents got divorced. And in the 50s, divorces kind of, you know, didn't really happen much, you know, or it was very quiet. But they got divorced. And my mother took my brother and I to Tucson, Arizona, and did not put us in school for a year. So that was a problem. So basically, when I should have been in second grade, I, I didn't go to school at all. Um, and we we lived all we lived between a motel sometimes and our car at other times. So today we would say that's considered being homeless, right. you know, or, or, you know, in, in need of a place. But my aunt, my mom's sister uh, said, Hey, I'll take Tim in. And so uh, I ended up going back to the Chicago area to Rock Island, Illinois and living with my aunt for the next five years. And the, 
the power of this of the story is really twofold. One, um, an, my aunt who acted in loco parentis and basically took me in as if I was her own child and and helped me to um, have a place of safety and not chaos. Right. right. The second thing was um, Mrs. Armstrong, the third grade teacher. So, and, and the thing I tell people is if you can just imagine being this third grade teacher who gets this kid in November, who has not been in second grade, that has not been in the first part of third grade, yeah. and, and he suddenly shows up in your class. And then on top of all that, he's not paying attention. He's not focused. He's not listening. He's not doing any of his work. He, he doesn't respond when you ask him questions, et cetera. Not unlike some of the experiences that our teachers today experience. Exactly. And one of the things that you and I would say is that part of our, part of the heart work of our life is to find out about the whole child. Like, okay, this kid's not behaving the way I want them to. Yes, they are academically behind. So, but what am I going to do about that? How do I respond? And, um, and Mrs. Armstrong and, and Brian, by the way, um, Mrs. Armstrong's when I got showed up in her class, her arm was broken. And so her arm was in a cast and a sling. And I remember in my brain, my seven-year-old brain thinking, this is hysterically funny that her name is Mrs. Armstrong <laughs> and her arm is broken. But nonetheless. That's she, humor. <laughs> it, it was. She comes to my aunt's house and says, I'll never forget this. She tells my aunt, we sit in the kitchen and she says, we, uh, we have three choices with your child. Number one, we can send them to the retarded school. And I've had some people say, you know, you probably shouldn't say that word, but I have to tell you in 58, that's exactly what they said. And that was exactly where you went. And that was considered, you know, the outcast, you know, they don't quite fit in. So we, we will just shove them off to that school. The second choice she said is just move them back to second grade and put them a year because he's a year behind. So, you know, he didn't go to second grade, put, put him back a grade. But Mrs. Armstrong said the third choice is we can get his hearing tested. And it turns out I was born completely deaf in my right ear. And I did not know that. They got my hearing tested. Turns out I have no hearing in my right ear. I only have one good ear, my left ear. And um, and I was sitting in the far back left side of the room, which meant that my bad ear was wow. to the teacher and in the back. So I had no idea that she was even speaking to me at times. Yeah. Mrs. Armstrong said, all right, let's move him to the right front of the room and see what happens. And overnight, I started participating. I started listening. I got engaged. And between her and my Aunt Dottie, I caught up on a year and a quarter's worth of content before third grade was over. I mean, was I happy about it? No, I, I wanted to go out and play catch. But my Aunt Dottie made me do two hours of, uh, of schoolwork after school every day. And Mrs. Armstrong gave her materials so that um, Dottie could, my aunt could work with me. And you know, I have to tell you, I'm I'm saying it pretty non-emotionally here right now, but when I when I do it in the Ignite session, every single time I show a picture of this house at the end of the session, right. it, it it just it tears at the fabric of who I am because I'm like, if Mrs. Armstrong yeah. had just not even talked to my aunt, but just said we're you know said to the principal, look, this kid doesn't fit in, send him to the retarded school. I, I often wonder what would have happened to me, what would have happened to my life, my career, you know, my path. And, and that's the power that teachers have. They they sort of, Tracy Kidder says, you snag children on the river of life. And, and I was like, yeah, that's it. Mrs. Armstrong snagged me somehow, and as did my aunt. Um, and, and that was 
you know, I, I su suspect for lots of children at whatever grade level or age that happens, sometimes it can happen to a 14 year old. Um, we snag, we snag them along the way and say, no, 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 come on, come on this way. Let's, let's learn more about what's really going on in your life. And, and that's, you know, that's part of the honor of this profession. It's, it can also be part of the burden because yeah. we're, we're not always, you know, my situation turned out pretty successful, but it doesn't always work out that way. And so, you know, that, that obviously, I don't know if that's why I became a teacher, but I think just listening to you, Tim, I think even if it wasn't the reason you became a teacher, it was probably in some way the reason why you don't give up on kids. Correct. I do believe that. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, and no I, matter who the student is, because like you said, basically you hit the educational lottery. Mrs. Armstrong, what if you had gone to a different school or had a different teacher? Your trajectory may have been totally different. I mean, I'm just fascinated or in, you know, just kind of surprised that she would even think about your hearing. Like some teachers may not even even thought about that. They just would have thought he's just misbehaving or doesn't pay attention. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, Brian, that's a really good point because circling all the way forward then, you know, I think ultimately uh, I wrote hard as a way to kind of appreciate i think i think the the people the teachers the educators that read hard that this is their basic they're they're the mrs armstrongs of the world and yeah. or it begins to get them more in touch with their mrs armstrong yeah. you know I, I think and and um and it's funny to me because there is no way uh, i i could have ever predicting, you know, there's, there's other parts of my story that are just so bizarre. Like when I went back to live with my dad and traveled with a circus for five years and yeah, and a carnival and, you know, I mean, but That's all another the, book. yeah, it is all those images sort of, or things sort of shaped, I think who we become, Yeah. but, but I do want to say, you know, my early years of teaching six years in a small rural district in mid-Northern Illinois, um, where I'm the only math teacher, grade six, 12, I think um, really helped me. I think a lot of those things were instinctual for me, that this is how I wanted to reach out to kids. But it also really um, made me realize, like, there's still a lot about teaching I have to learn. But I but I suppose you're right. You know, I, I always looked at kids differently and felt that I'm here. It's much more about mathematics even though I became, you know, very entrenched in the academics of mathematics, um, you know, I think for me, it's always been much more than just the mathematics. The mathematics was the vehicle for for reaching kids. Yeah, I mean, again, I can't imagine you not wearing Mrs. Armstrong, um, your Aunt Dottie, yeah. um, who you said was like the heart and your Uncle Al was like the soul. And I loved the That's kind of, true. you know, the analogy in your book when you talk about um, was it Hokey Carmichael's song, Heart and Soul, and and yeah. how this has kind of come full circle, right? Yeah, I really think so. In fact, when I was when when I was beginning to think about writing Soul, and and here's this is really uh, probably one of the more difficult aspects of it all, but um, I wanted to follow up Heart, and I was thinking Heart Two or whatever. Eventually, Heart and Soul was in, in that song, yeah. and, and Uncle Al teaching me that it just seemed natural to kind of follow up with that kind of message um 
But what a lot of people don't know is, is I took that book, the idea of it, um, I'd written up a prospectus <clears throat> and, uh, and, and unfortunately about three weeks before Becky DeFore passed away, I had taken the book to Becky and said, I'd like you to co-author it with me and write it with me. And, um, and unfortunately she passed away and I wasn't able to do that. And I, that, that's why soul probably feels um, the way it does, because I think I was also writing it while I was grieving. Um, it's kind of interesting. Soul's just so much deeper than heart in some ways in, in terms of how it asks us to, I mean, bottom line is soul is all about soul searching. Yeah. And, 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 and I say that your soul search is about finding and, and sustaining the good inside of you in order to create good in others. Yeah. I, and, and that again comes back to Mrs. Armstrong, right? Like, uh, and, and actually um, and kind of related to that would be, I had a college professor by the name of uh, Dr. Al Otto. And I was in his, one of his classes, you know, like it was an abstract algebra class. The class doesn't matter, but I was sort of skating. I was, I was kind of getting C's. And I remember one night uh, he took me aside and, and he just said to me, he said, you know, um, I'm kind of tired of it. I, I'm sometimes loving kids. It's tough loving them. Yeah. He, he said, I'm just tired of it. I'm watching you. I don't even know why you're in my class. You're just wasting your time. You're wasting my time. You, know, you should be getting A's and and you're, you know, you just obviously don't care enough about the class to pay attention. He, he really kind of let me have it into you, right? He did. He really did. Um, and, and then, and of course I respond to that by proving him wrong and, you know, and, and, and also respecting him enough that I didn't want to let him down. Sure. But it also taught me that you can love your students in different ways. You can, you can, and, and I feel like when I, when I wrote Soul, it was about that. It was about, you know, how, because there's a, quite a few chapters about validation and belonging under the unifying one. There, there's quite a, and, and I wanted to really get at that idea that uh, of our responsibility to, to create, that you can validate, yeah. you can validate people in lots of different, with your students and your colleagues in lots of different ways. So, so soul just goes on a different journey. That's, a, I think, a little bit deeper in some ways. And I think for me, part was really when you talk about fully forming your professional life, it really was deeper. It was like about me, it personally yes. reflecting. Soul fully, I mean, fulfilling the promise. I mean, this is what I'm expected to do. This is my responsibility, my obligation to this profession. Brian, that's such a great observation. You know, I, I don't think I've even said it with that kind of clarity. I think soul, you know, I talk, I do talk early on in the book about this second mountain climb, this idea of, of um, you know, it, it's very subtle. But in the, in the beginning of my teaching life, the, the question I asked is, what is the profession doing for me? Yeah. Well, it's giving me a salary. It's giving me health benefits. It's giving me you know, um, an opportunity to, to have a career, et cetera. Um, maybe it's even recognizing me occasionally by somebody saying thank you or whether it's parents or right. It's all those things, it's, but it's all about the professions making me. 
But at some point we cross over to this place where we say, what is the profession asking of me? Exactly. What is the profession asking of me? Well, it's asking me to be, to work with my colleagues and to make sure we're erasing inequities that go on even in our own teaching, because we're not having conversations around our practices. It's asking me to, to, um, to validate <laughs> students who may not seem worthy. Yeah. You know, I tell a joke it's a it's a kind of a standard joke that I've told for a long time, but I tell it to make a point. It's just I ask the audience like, so uh, do you know what the um, what what the uh, uh, what the the best average class size is for teachers? Do you know what the average class size should be? And everybody's like, no, you know, they're not sure what to say. And I say, well, you know, it's it's the the best the average class size is whatever you have minus three. And then you get to name the three yeah. and then, and they, and it gets a laugh, but then I say, well, you know, the ideal class size, whatever you have minus three, whatever. And then I say, well, here's the thing. How do you validate even the three? How do, how do we go about doing that? How do we create a case of belonging for kids who may not even deserve our validation, but, but still hunger for it. They just don't necessarily know it at that moment. So, so I think, you know, those are when that's what the profession asks of us it asks us to be warm demanders you know not not to to just be nice and kind but to also say no i have high expectations for you too and i'll help you get there so it's both and and so the profession asks a lot of us it it i think but once you get to that place then being about student learning is no longer a big deal because that's what the profession asks of us. And, and I get that. Oh, that's why I'm signed up for this. That's why I'm here today. That's why I'm going into work and doing all this hard stuff because the profession asks me to do these things at a really um, best practice level, sort of. So, And once you can own that, it really, um, no matter what happens, although, like you said, this profession is draining and it's hard and it's challenging and it can be down. But once you own that, it's, it's again, it's like your why, then then you can move through because you know this is my purpose. This is my purpose. So it doesn't matter what arrows are coming at me. My focus is student learning and to touch that child, that kid, that individual. Yeah, yeah. And and then you're in, in the and what and the residue of that purpose are all of the students and all of the colleagues yeah. that have been a beneficiary of being in your pathway, yeah. right? Like you said, you said, you know, when you said you the proverb, I was thinking about yeah, this. Oh, I'm wearing you. Yeah. Yeah. And and um I was thinking about this I don't know, uh, article I, I wrote a long time ago about uh wearing the the coats you wear at Thanksgiving. You know the old coats. These are your family members, you know, and so on, and the comfort, the comfortableness of all that. And and we are uh, we are part of that. You know that is part of who we are. Yeah. I don't know. That it it makes sense that it's easy to lose sight of all the people that are the beneficiaries of our lives. Yeah. You know that, and and because you can't. I think for teachers, it's just so hard. If I'm a fourth grade teacher, I don't necessarily see that 38 year old out there yeah, who who had who was impacted by me. Yeah. You know, that's um, the difficulty you know, uh, because thirty years right. ago. Yeah, I mean, I'm a preschool teacher. I don't see a middle school kid who I was working with who may have been challenging, but who, who've had you know some challenges, and I poured into that student, and I don't see. I don't reap the benefits 
of what I poured into them, but I, we have to believe, we have to have that faith that they're going to, they're going to grow because of what we poured into them. That's correct. And, and, and that it, it, it matters. Yeah. I think we want to know our work matters. And sometimes that, that knowing is delayed yeah. or it's implied, you know, you don't necessarily maybe sometimes you see it because you go to a graduation, you see kids walk right. across the stage, right. you know, that, that always helps. Or you see, um, you see the child the next year and you can kind of see they're doing a little bit better, you know? Uh, so, but it's not just our students. It's also our colleagues. You know, it's, it, I think that's the powerful part of what we're talking about is, um, I mean, even in soul, the you part of soul is about unifying. I kind of had a, this collaboration theme again in built into there. And it, and it is about um, our colleagues are the beneficiaries or should be at least as well. It, it, we, we don't live in isolation. So when that happens, uh, they become my professional family and I grow because I'm part of that. Right. And it's, it's so important because again, you know, learning is again, not in a vacuum. Right. And so hence, you know, adult learning and student learning go hand in hand, you know, collectively. Right. And so yeah. if we have a great team, then we're going to, you know, make sure that all the kids on our team, you know, have the benefit of our, you know, collective wisdom, expertise, experience, knowledge to give them the best, which they deserve. Yeah, I totally agree. And strangely enough, you know, that that's what that's why everything we've just said is is if we do that really well, if we if we do the things I wrote about in Heart and Soul well, I think part of what happens is though when I get to the place where what's the profession asking of me and I take it seriously, then I can easily get worn down. I can easily um feel the the depth of that and and so that's why tina and i tina Boger and i work together to go to educator wellness. wellness yes yeah i mean and that's why we went there you know i i just said tina look you've written some great books on uh she's her self-care um for educators book and her 180 days of self-care you know all her mentoring book i mean she's just such a great thinker about these things and, and i was like we need to give educators help on how to um how to be physically, mentally, and emotionally strong so that they can deliver on this promise, you know, of, of, of what the, of what the profession's asking of us. And so it just seemed like uh, a natural next step, I think for us and, and for both of us. And, and I'm really happy with that work too. Can you talk a little bit about, and I'm just going to kind of jump around a little bit, but you know, in heart, you, you talk a little bit about um, early 2000 when you had your heart attack. Yeah, that, because that's a major kind of turning point or, or at least a major factor in, you know, you, Tim Kainold, I want to, don't want to say 2.0, but Tim Kainold moving forward from that point in terms of not just your profession, but per personally as well, in terms of now you were talking about before, before we started the podcast, you running marathons and making sure you're really healthy. <laughs> Can you talk a yeah. little bit about that and how that really kind of changed um, you a little bit? Yeah, I can. And and um and even in the context of um you know, it's funny. I tell the 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 heart heart attack story in the context of collaboration because it's all about um this team of of uh, doctors working on me, but then this other team watching them work and and observing them and giving them feedback and so it's about a formative process of learning and then I use it to kind of make a point about 
um, you know, teacher walkthroughs and how we can all learn from one another and not being afraid of feedback from our colleagues, et cetera. But, but, but the reality is these days I talk about it and I ask everyone in my audience that because the wellness sessions are always packed. I just say, okay, I want, because one of our routines under physical wellness is movement. And so I, I just say, all right, I want you to think of a time when you stopped moving. You know, like even if you're moving now and you're doing all kinds of great, you know, um, you know, you're doing 30 minutes of walking a day or whatever, that's great. But can you think of a time when you stopped moving? And I have them reflect on that. And I said, well, I want to tell you when I stopped moving, it was 1998. And I was, um, and I then I just explained, and I said, and I stopped moving, and I have these this list of reasons that I have people they can choose from. And and it and my story hits all the reasons. And and so I'd stopped moving because I'd gotten injured. And so, you know, I kind of was like, I need to take some time off. Right. Now I was working on my doctorate um, and I was going to school. I was going nights. Um, I'm coaching both my kids and their teams, basketball and baseball. Um, my older older kids now, but at the time they were in middle school, high school. Uh, I'm, of course, doing my job full time. I'm writing math textbooks. I've got all this stuff going on in my life. You know, we're just, yeah, it's just you're, you're spinning all the plates. You've yeah. got it. Yep. So long story short, um, I just stopped moving. Like I, I stopped any intentional activity that would physically take care of myself. And sometimes when you do that and you're not eating right anymore and you're kind of eating on the run and you're just, but in, you know, I'm 47 years old at the time and you just think, you know, like life will be forever. And so what happened was, um, Four years later, I'm now superintendent at Stevenson. I'd just taken over. And um, sure enough, uh, my body said, well, fine. You want to you wanna ignore this for four years? Well, here you go. And sure enough, you know, I'm through, going through a seven-hour operation, um, you know, in 2002. But that was a, thankfully, and that whole process uh uh, since about now, 2009, I've had no problems at all. I do try to eat better and move better and kind of try to stay up on all of it. And, and it's not about that, but it, it's, it was about, I allowed myself to get to a place where then this really serious event happened and I had to kind of regroup and go, okay. And sometimes I think, Brian, we move for artificial reasons. Like for example, oh, I want to lose weight. That's fine. But but that's that's external. I, I, I want to look better. Even that's external. But an internal reason to move would be like, I don't ever want to have a heart attack again. I'm, I'm going to keep moving because that will keep my heart stronger. An internal reason to move would be in 19, uh, in, in 2035, I'll have two grandchildren that will walk across the stage from high school. I'd like to see both of them walk across the stage. That's why I'm moving today. Yeah. It's it, My internal reason is far bigger than any external reason about how how it may help me look um, or feel, even though those are good things, they're not sustainable. We sometimes have to look at um, what's the real reason I need to do this, and and, and what what will be the benefit of it, and and in, and then in collaboration with it, it really helps because I have someone in my life with my wife Susan who wants to move also. She sure. too wants to. Um, do this. So the fact that we can, we work at this together, we go on hikes together, we, yeah. we intentionally are doing things. Um, we eat better because we're both making the decision to eat better, right? And and to make good decisions about that. So it, it's not that that's 
great. But the, the, you know, in terms of that's the right answer how for us, but what I do think worked was that, that journey back, um, which was about seven years before I was finally kind of back to completely normal while also still working and doing everything else you do. Um, you know, I don't think I'd be where I am at this moment, even here in this, you know, you know, podcast with you, if, if I hadn't responded appropriately to what happened and, and, and had, had this kind of second chance. So, so yeah, you know, I, I think, um, I'm very grateful that I, I had really great surgeons and people that worked on me, cardiac folks and uh, at, at, at the hospital and, and subsequent follow-up. Do you think, and again, I might be reaching a little bit, but do you think what you went through as a child and some of the challenges that you um, experienced give you this inner will, this inner drive to, you know, be successful in any, you know, you know, with any challenge that may, you might be faced. So the heart attack gives you this will, like, I'm not going to let this beat me. Or is it just, no. is it just that you just want to, like you said, those internal things, maybe it's a combination. I don't know. I think it's a combination. I, I don't know where it comes from. And, you know, I, 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 I don't know, but I've always had this internal, um, mindset, I think, I don't know if it's a drive. It's more of a mindset of this obligation to get the most out of life I can, to enjoy. We have a family saying, carpe diem. It might sound trite, but that's our kind of fan band. We call it our saying that we all, I, I'm very aware of wanting to get the best out of this day that I'm in. And I and I've I have felt that way almost my whole life. And I have no idea why. I don't know for sure where that comes from. And that sustains you when things are, because I've had a lot of really tough moments in life and, and including being at one point, you know, you know, really struggling financially, you know, in those early years of teaching and so on. But, but I think that the, that drive or that mindset um, is, is constant for me. It's, it's like, it's it's just how I sort of see the world, and uh, and and that's and I do see all of the stuff that go. In fact, when I wrote Soul, COVID was happening. Um, there was a lot of uh, kind of we had sort of a rebirth of of so much of the social unrest in our country, uh, social justice unrest. So I knew that. I mean, I I felt it and I could feel it and I could emotionally attach to it. Sure. But compassion is about responding to it, not just dwelling in it. Yeah. I think self-compassion is about making a decision to to relieve yourself of your suffering. And so that's what I wanted to do. I, I, I think I've always made an attempt to to do that, to be aware that I'm suffering and then um, and that these things affect me, but making it the choice of but here's how I'm going to walk through life in order to 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 um, embrace that suffering and encounter it and deal with it. One of the things I, I can't remember which book it was in, but you talked about this idea of stress and, you know, stress is not bad, but if you're in, you know, a constant state of stress, then that's not great. And I think that's, you know, what you're saying, you're choosing to make sure that you're, you might have some challenges or suffer or you're, you're in a, a state of stress, but you choose not to stay there. Yeah, that's really true. In fact, um, there is quite a bit of neuroscience brain research. Now we talk about it in the wellness book about, about, um, 
stress is actually good for us because it keeps us alive. It makes us feel like, like we're, we're doing things that are worthy, you know, and so on that, that uh, living a full, busy, kind of complete, wholesome, uh, um, whole filled life, I should say, you know, kind of not, not wholesome, but whole where, where you're feeling like you're, you're, you're in a sweet spot, but you're not overwhelmed by it all right. is really a good thing because to actually be bored would, would be worse. But um, when you get to the point where you're where you're hurried and and you're and you're overstressed because you can't keep up with all the demands that are on your plate and so on, that's not good. And 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 that's why we I write so much about living a more balanced life. You know, like really taking time out of your day to um, to to reflect, to get quiet, to um, remove yourself from all the noise and the social media noise of your world, and just be really selfish for a brief amount of time every day. Um, Sherry Turkle, who's um, a professor at MIT and has written a lot of, she's a technology and kind of psychology professor. And she has said that in order for you to, uh, you and I to be in healthy relationships with one another, we really need to um, find time for solitude every single day. That if you want to be in relationships with other people that are healthy, then you must also be comfortable being in a relationship with yourself at some point of every day and just getting quiet and away from all the noise and, and, and getting comfortable with that quiet, with that solitude. And you can write or journal or reflect or whatever, but, but that balance is really helpful. And, and sometimes even allows you to maybe process like, okay, so why am I not sleeping better? Why am I not doing this? You know, like, what can I do to change those routines? Um, I think all that kind of stuff is helpful because our jobs are just so demanding. So uh, I think finding time, teaching is such a reflective practice, but, um, and so we're always reflecting about others, but what do we do to reflect for ourselves so that, you know, we can kind of examine ourselves. So I, I just, the book heart. anyone listening to heart this, and soul, you know, we use those books to help us reflect. Yeah. That, and that's why exactly. I think that's part of the secret, right? Yeah. It gives you, that's something good to do during that quiet time. <laughs> Tim, I really appreciate this. Um, you have been awesome. And, you know, I always, you know, talk about the people who I wear, you're one of those people who I wear, um, you know, all over the place, uh, you know, Rick and Becky and, and Bob have been, you know, heroes of mine and, and people who I've, you know, really respected and, and they mentored me as well. And I've had a lot of people who have, you know, just poured into me. But um, when you came to me and asked, um, could you interview me and, and write yeah. that chapter, chapter seven, I believe, in, in Seoul on my, my story, um, one, it, it made me feel great because you, you know, felt like I had something to offer. But it also made me in awe because I'm like, Tim Kano asked me to be in a book, which was pretty cool. Well, Brian, I appreciate that. But um, your your story is so compelling. And, you know, and I felt like um, it needed to be told. And and to be honest, you know, when I asked you, you know, I, I'm like, okay, because it's going to be public and are you really willing for your story to be told yeah. and i'm really glad you did and um and it's such a powerful story um well, I, I do appreciate your it. educational journey is such a powerful story and it's and it provides a lens i think for for a lot of people who who can feel that story and it's their story too so brian it offers so much to so many people and 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 i think that's 
part of what I wanted Soul to do was to help help that as well. I think we again we all have our stories, and I think as much as we can share those stories because it's not about us. It's about like like you said, how can we make a connection um, or or have somebody out there say, oh, he or she went through this, I can go through this, or he or she went through this and didn't wasn't successful in this area. I'm okay because I wasn't successful yet. I can I can get better or whatever. Um, I think we we all what your books do is they connect us. I mean, how how do we there there's so much out there that can divide us, but your books connect us. What what do we have in common? You know, these soul stories, these heart stories. We 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 all have this yearning to to want to you know get better, want to do better, want to help, want to support. Um, and that's a connection for us. Yeah, believe it or not, that it, and it's funny you say that because I, when I think back about your story that's in the book, one of the early parts of your story that 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 just connected for me was when you, I can't remember you injured your knee. I can't remember if it was your kneecap or your knee. Yes, I hurt you, my knee. Yeah, I had two yeah, and, yeah. and pretty severely to the point where where that wasn't going to be your career path anymore. and 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 you had to kind of reinvent yourself and and the courage it took to do that so see that's what i mean there's these inflection points in our life path that just yeah and and again that courage came with people saying you can do this right yeah how many times did that keep happening to you right exactly I just love that, you know, and and I think that's why we're teachers, because that's the power we can provide for others. We keep storing them along. We keep telling, you know, we keep, and it's not just enough. We don't just say you can do this. We say you can do this and I will be there to help you. Yeah. Yeah. Which which is, you know, nothing greater. Here's the thing I'll just say is uh, I don't think there's anything greater than our profession. I, I cannot imagine anyone, you know, when you look at the at the World Health Organization's definition of mental wellness, the very last part of the definition says, in order to better serve our community within which we live. And I'm like, is that not exactly what we're called to do? We are serving the community. Maybe we don't live in that exact community or whatever, but we're serving the greater community, the next generation of humans that are going to come forward as a young adults. And I'm like, I don't know if there's anything greater, you know, yeah. it's, it's such a, it, you know, and obviously I'm looking back on it with a, with a long history. Um, but I do feel like no matter where you're at in your teaching journey, even, even if you're in your early years, you can feel that, that you're providing that, that this, you're improving the community in which with, within which people live because oh, yeah. chosen to be an educator. All you have to do is is walk in to your your building and look into a child's eyes, and you can see a light bulb go on, or some type of connection, or something, or even as something as simple as a child who uh, may not have a lot of food at home, and they come into a a school that has a free breakfast, and you see their eyes because they they're they're able to eat. We provide so much, Tim, and I think as you said before, sometimes we don't see the fruits of our labor, but. Uh, we are pouring into so many kids and so many colleagues, as you said, that we are changing the world. Yeah, I think so. And and I really, yeah, you know, one, one last thing I'll just say real quick was, um, 
the last student teacher I ever had was a, a woman named uh, Linda Rush. And she was a math teacher. And Linda eventually joined me at Stevenson. She worked the whole time I was there at Stevenson. And she retired. Her retirement year was when COVID hit in March of 2020. And that would be her last year of teaching. So in March of 2020, her kids get ripped away from her. And, and, and she's just dying on the inside because they're not coming back. She didn't get to say goodbye. They just, it's just all of a sudden decisions made. Kids aren't showing up anymore. And she had like probably 145, 155 kids somewhere in there. And, and she's not even going to have like a, a faculty farewell thing, right? She, she was retiring after her entire career at Stevenson in one place. But she did something. She, she wrote, she hand wrote a, a letter to every single one of her students during COVID and sent it to their home telling them just how much they appreciated you know and, and even she goes even my husband thought i was a little nuts because you know, i'm gonna write all these letters to my students and she said what was amazing was the response she got back and with even her most quiet students you know kind of saying you know mrs rush thank you for this or thank you for that you know just reaching out and in in that outpouring response like if she probably would never have even known that because they wouldn't, some of them who are shy just wouldn't have the courage to say it. I just love that. Like that, that was a gift actually. It goes on everywhere. Yeah. 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 All right. So anyway, well, that's pretty I, cool. I appreciate you. That's a great story to end on. I, I appreciate you so much. As I said, I am wearing you and so many people around the world and all the books and, you know, the people you've spoken to and the educators you have influenced, they are wearing you, you they are wearing Tim Canold and, and um, you you have influenced generations. Just just know that. And I, I think you know that. Yeah, so, thanks. I really appreciate that. But but I and it's just as we are all that way there you know i i stand on the shoulders of so many other people and and i'm kind of shaped by the opportunities that they gave me as well so i appreciate it you're a good man well thank you so much and thanks. i really appreciate you coming on a conversation with brian and we'll talk to you very soon thanks tim all right take good care thanks again brian Bye. all right subscribe to a conversation with brian on my youtube channel and spotify <laughs>